Um, commenting on the context of the parable that we had read to us today, N.T. Wright says that every culture has its own way of celebrating a wedding and its own risks of getting things wrong. <laughs> you know, and you've probably seen the, the blooper reels from weddings. And I've had a few interesting weddings where things have gone a bit wrong, but nothing too major. Nothing that would make a bloopers real or that would be as socially disastrous for me as the foolish bridesmaids not being ready for the bridegroom's arrival in Jesus' parable. Nothing so disastrous that the door would be slammed in my face and I would be disavowed, which is the shocking conclusion to this parable. Now, one wedding I took... Uh, the bride was always known to us as Nikki, but that was her nickname. Uh, and so for the wedding, she wanted to have her full name. And so I asked, I said, oh, so it must be Nicola. But it wasn't. It was Nicole. Not Nikki or Nicola, but Nicole. And so I wrote it down and kept saying it over and over again in my mind. Nicole, not Nikki or Nicola. Well, it was my first wedding that I ever took and I was super nervous. So the wedding started and the first time that I said uh, her name, guess what? Nikki. And then the second time that I said her name, Guess what? No, not Nikki. Nicola. <laughs> and I just could not get it right. I couldn't get it right. Now, they'd wanted me to lead the service, but fortunately, at that stage, I wasn't a marriage celebrant, so they got another marriage celebrant to come and do the official I do's bit, and he got the names right. So the right people got married to each other. And you'll be pleased to know that I'm still on friendly terms with the couple. But every time I see them, I have this real sense of embarrassment. And fortunately, she's gone back to being just Nikki. For one wedding, I was asked if it was okay if the couple could have a dog as their best man. Which I agreed to as long as someone else, not the dog... Uh, signed the marriage certificate as a witness. Now, you'd think that was fraught with all kinds of possible disasters, right? But that wasn't where the trouble came. The same couple also asked me to sing at their wedding as well as take it. Uh, they, uh, they, were, they wanted a, this church song, The Power of Your Love by Hillsong because they just thought it was wonderful and it expressed what they felt for each other. And they wanted it, but they thought they couldn't sing it as a congrega congregation because no one would know it. So could I sing it? Foolishly, I said, okay. Now, I used it as a wieter at the end of my wedding sermon. And I sang it okay. I really did might be surprised about that. Right through to the last line, when the organist played the wrong note, and I finished the whole thing on this long bum note crescendo. 
It really fell flat. Fortunately, everybody just laughed. Except the dog. <laughs> but I don't think he really minded that much. Things going wrong at weddings forms the context for the parable Jesus told that we are looking at today. It's the second of four parables with which Jesus finishes his Olivet Discourses, teaching on the Mount of Olives. Olives. His teaching on the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the end of the age, and the consummation of his kingdom when Christ returns. The second of four parables he tells to teach his disciples what it means to be ready and waiting for his return. The second of four parables with which he will, uh, we will be finishing our year-long journey through Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of heaven in Matthew's gospel, those five blocks of teaching that we've been working through. And it's a parable that Jesus finishes with the punchline, keep watch and be ready because you do not know the day or the hour, which are the same words with which he started his first parable of the faithful and unfaithful servants, that we looked at and Dennis preached on last week. And the two parables are used together to convey the same challenge. Be ready now. Because you don't know the day or the hour. And what makes this parable hard for us to comprehend is the wedding rituals it speaks about are so different than our own. In our own Western culture. Um, People who are from the East, uh, from different cultures, it, it may be a lot similar to what you do, but for a lot of us Western folk it seems a bit strange because the focus in the parable is waiting for the bridegroom. Whereas in our modern Western cultures, the emphasis is always waiting for the bride, right? And the bride's arrival and her grand entrance. And everybody goes, ah, you know? And the bridesmaids attend the bride, not the groom. Okay? That's the way we kind of do it. Well, in first century Jewish society, the wedding rituals were long and complex, and they were full of feasts and festivities. And they focused on the groom. After being betrothed in a time of preparing, the groom would proceed to his bride's village and house to get his bride. They would have a feast with that family, a way it was sort of like a farewell feast, acknowledging that their daughter was, was leaving and going to be part of another family. And then there'd be a procession back to the family's, the, uh, the groom's family's home with the bride, and there'd be another bigger feast, a welcoming into this new family. And it was a joyous occasion that the whole family and village, the whole community would be involved in. And it's kind of like, when I was reading, reading this, it's kind of like when I was growing up. I remember going with my mother if there was a wedding at our local church. Um, and uh, if we vaguely knew the person getting married. And we would gather with other neighbours outside the church gates just to welcome and to see the bride. Even though we were not close enough to the people to be invited to the wedding. Do other people remember doing that when they were young? Yeah. yeah, it seems to have finished, eh? It's changed. It was a community thing. 
And the young unmarried girls in the family and village had an important part to play in this joyful celebration because they were given the role of welcoming the bride and groom back to the groom's village and house. And to be not ready to celebrate with the groom was seen as a huge social insult. You know, it was the worst possible thing he could do. We're also used to having weddings during the day. But in the desert-like conditions of the Middle East, these festivities happen more regularly in the cool of the evening or the cool of the night. So lamps would have been an essential part of the festive procession. And the lamps were like our garden torches that you can buy and pick up at Mitre 10. Uh, that had a wick and a reservoir of oil to keep them alight for as long as was needed. You didn't know when the groom was coming, so you needed to be prepared for the long haul. And also, it was common for grooms and their brides to be delayed. Now, I usually tell the bride to be about five or ten minutes late for the wedding because she was worth waiting for so she's worth waiting for, right? And it builds up the tension. And it allows those two people, two scoundrels who turn up late to be able to sneak into the church and sit down before the bride enters. But I've had a few weddings where there have been long delays. We had a country wedding in Estale where there was a car crash just as the wedding was supposed to be starting, outside on the main road, and it closed the road for an hour. And we were all in the church, and the bride was stuck on the other side of the closure for an hour. And we had to wait for her. And there was no power, at the, uh, there was no power in the church either. So the church organist sprinted home. She lived in a vineyard just down the road. She sprinted home. She didn't bring back... So, uh, a few bottles of uh, Hawke's Bay Red to sort of calm the crowd. She brought her violin and started playing uh, jigs and everybody was sitting in the, in the um, church tapping the, um, tapping the pews and stamping their feet in a good way and a dance almost broke out and when the bride finally arrived, I greeted her with a smile and said, you wanted one of those quaint, rustic fam uh, country weddings? Well, you've got it. <laughs> and I should say that the sunlight coming through the... Uh, the windows into a darkened church gave it a real fairy tale look. The second one, uh, was, there was an hour delay because the bride, who just happened to be eight months pregnant, uh, decided that she wanted to come to the wedding in an old camper van that her and her partner and the, the children they had together um, had, uh, had been living in. Uh, and, but the thing was, it, it, it kept... Over, overheating, so they had to stop along the way. Now, um, in, the, in the age of cell phones, people in the church knew that this was happening, right? But I'm thinking, she's eight months pregnant and she's late. Perhaps she's early. But there was a long delay. But in Jesus' day, there wasn't traffic or broken down cars or overturned donkeys but on the way back to their home and to their village, they would stop along the way, maybe if there were family. But they would stop and they would do the kind of things that needed to be done. And those things would take the time that they took 
So it might be a long journey all the way back home. Um, kind of like when a pro prominent Māori person dies in New Zealand and, and there are a series of marae that they lie in state in. And at each marae, things just take the time that they take. And so it was well after midnight by the time they arrived. But for the wedding in Jesus' day, you know, everybody needed to be ready. Even though they didn't know what time the bridegroom was come, they needed to be ready to celebrate in joyful anticipation. And in Jesus' parable, the action revolves around the, uh, the bridegroom being so delayed that all the bridesmaids doze off. And Jesus tells us five of them were wise and had ensured that they had enough oil to fuel their lamps, even if there was a delay. The other five, Jesus calls foolish. They did not have enough oil. So when the process of procession appears in the distance, their lamps would be spluttering and going out. And we're told that they asked the other bridesmaids for oil, but are told that there isn't enough for them as well as for others. So they'll need to go and buy some oil. Now, of course, we're told that it's after midnight, and you know, this is well before there were 24-hour petrol stations or convenience stores around the corner that just happened to sell oil, uh, lamp oil. So it would have been an arduous journey to try and find and wake up the oil merchant and bargain for what was needed. And we don't know. The story doesn't tell us whether or not they actually got oil. But when they came back and they are knocked, the, the feast had started and the door was locked. And they pound on it. And they're told, go away. I do not know you. It's social disgrace and rejection. How does this parable relate to us? Well, it starts with Jesus saying, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like. So Jesus is inviting us to see that this parable is talking about the day of his return uh, that he'd been talking about in the previous chapter. When the kingdom that he was about to inaugurate in his death and resurrection would be consummated and Christ would return to set all things right. You see, Jesus is the bridegroom in the parable. In the Old Testament, God is called Israel's husband. In the New Testament, in Galatians, he's called the bridegroom, and the church is seen as his bride. And while the bridegroom has come to get his bride, the bridegroom is delayed. And of course, one of the big questions for Matthew's first readers would have been this delay, because they expected that Jesus would return in their day. Um, you know, uh, with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD, there was this heightened expectation that Christ would return and set everything right. But here we are still waiting 2,000 years later. And that is the big challenge, this delay, this seeming delay. But we too are called to await his return with joyful anticipation, to be people who live in hope of the future. And just like the bridesmaids in this parable, it's easy to lose that joyful anticipation and allow ourselves to doze off, become weary, maybe even to wonder if the groom will ever get here. Then we have to ask ourselves, well, where do we stand 
in this parable. Because did you notice that there's no mention of the bride? Now, the emphasis is supposed to be on the bridegroom in the parable, but you'd think that there'd be some mention of the bride. And of course, for us as followers of Jesus, we like to think of the fact that as the church, we are the bride of Christ. So maybe without the the bride being mentioned, we wonder where can we stand in this parable? You know, because we're used to seeing ourselves as the bride in this kind of metaphor. And now, in fact, in some later Latin translations of Matthew's gospel, and the bride is added in at the end of verse 1. But it's not in the original text. And uh, this is the part of the wedding ritual where the groom brings his wife back to his home. And so it's full of biblical imagery for us about this last day that we really like. You know? Um, in the context of a, we- of a wedding is where Jesus' words, I go to prepare a place for you in my Father's house and I will come back to get you to be where I am. You know, that's full of all this wedding imagery of the bride of Christ. But there's no bride in this parable. Where do we stand? Well, we're supposed to see ourselves amidst the bridesmaids. People whose role and task is to await and to joyously celebrate and proclaim the imminent arrival of the groom. To be ready and looking forward in anticipation of his return. (laughs) You know what that means, don't you? We need to ask ourselves what it means to be either one of the wise or the foolish. Now, when the Bible uses the word wise and foolish, it's not talking about the relative IQ of the women involved. Okay, it's not putting young women down. It's not the idea of a dumb blonde or a giggly schoolgirl. In fact, in Proverbs in the Old Testament, wisdom is portrayed as a woman. You know, the Bible actually has a high opinion and a high status for women. Rather, wise and foolish in Scripture are used to talk about how people live their lives in relationship with God. And the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, is the respect, is the awe of God. To be wise is to live your life in a right relationship with God. That is to be the place from which your life and behavior and priorities come from. On the contrary, to be foolish is to live your life without reference to God at all. Psalm 14 verse 1 says, Only a fool says in his heart, there is no God. And I've got this terrible joke (laughs) Um, that, uh, you know, know how atheists always complain about not having a day on the calendar for them to celebrate? And my response is always, well, you could have April the 1st. (laughs) You know, but the fool lives their life accordingly. They live it without reference to God. In this case, it's, it's manifest in not being ready for the coming of the bridegroom, not being prepared for Christ's return, not thinking about life in terms of eternity. Now, many people have looked at this parable being about keeping good spiritual practices as Christians, right? So that our oil reserves 
will be good for the long haul. It's what we can do to keep those, our tank filled up. I was talking to somebody this week uh, about lifestyles and he says, what do you do to make, make it sure your tanks are filled up? And I said, thanks for asking me. Um, sorry. <laughs> you can tell I'm tired. The, uh, the, the, the puns are coming. And, uh, you know, that's good advice. It's good advice to keep our spiritual life and our spiritual disciplines going um, because it does keep our spiritual life vital. And I couldn't help think of that old 1960s youth and children song. You know the one. Uh, Give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning. Give me oil in my lamp, I pray. And you probably, if you, you also remember the cheesy, uh, cheesy vo- uh, variations as well, you know. Give me gas for my Ford, keep me trucking. Give me gas for my Ford, I pray. And give me wax for my board, keep me surfing. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, think about that sort of thing. But the fact that the oil is not being able to be shared and given away as a gift to others, I actually think that Jesus is talking about something deeper here. He's not just talking about our spiritual disciplines. In actual fact, the focus is on salvation. Our salvation. And you know, that's backed up by the shut door and being disavowed by the bridegroom that the foolish bridesmaids receive. And the welcome and sitting down to feast of the wise bridegrooms in the parable. You know, it's that important. It's that important. And it begs the question, it really does. And I'm, I'm not a, you know, um, I'm not, I don't, I'm not a, an altar call at every service kind of guy, but it does beg the question. You know, um, have we given our lives over to Christ? In a way that even if we get weary and sleepy waiting for him, that we will have enough oil in our lamp to joyfully welcome him. Because you see, The difference between the wise and the foolish is the decision the wise made to ensure they had the oil. And while the oil here may be a symbol of the Holy Spirit, it's not how somehow we can fill our tanks with the Holy Spirit by what we do. I actually think that if the oil is the Holy Spirit, it's talking about the fact that that is the gift that Christ gives us when we give our lives to Christ. Christ comes and dwells within us. That's the oil. The real challenge of this passage is to be ready and to be on watch now. Not to wait. Don't put it off. Don't wait till the last hour because if you wait for Christ's return, well, no one knows the hour or the day. Now this parable is about the kingdom So a lot of Jesus' parables about the kingdom in Matthew's gospel could have a big picture application. Jesus could be likening the foolish bridesmaid to the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees and the the scribes, who kind of have that flickering flame. They've got part of the truth, but they don't have what it's going to take to to see them through the dark times that are coming, to look and see that their Messiah is come and is coming again. And that those that do have the oil, the wise, are those who have put their faith in Jesus. 
or it may be a challenge because Jesus is talking to his disciples in private, speaking to each one of us individually. And the challenge and the call and the invite of this parable and passage is to be ready and watching now. To be wise and see that see Jesus Christ for who he is and to give our lives over to him and live prepared with joyful anticipation of his return. Yes, sometimes we grow weary and tired. And you know, what happens around us can just wear us out and wear us down. But it's that faith in Christ, the soon and coming King, that gives us the joyful hope that we need to wake us from our slumber again and be ready. Well, where do you stand? Where do you stand in this parable and in life? Do you need again to examine where you are at with, with Christ? Are you ready today? And also, if you are here and you haven't really thought about where Jesus fits into your life and, you know, what about this whole eternity thing? The time to think seriously about it is now. Be ready. Be on watch. Let's pray.